This morning I want to read uh, through the chapter first, and then and then we will study it. Job 23. Then Job replied, Even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. Would he oppose me with great power? No, he would not press charges against me. There an upright man could present his case before him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. But if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. But he stands alone, and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. He carries out his decree against me, and many such plans he still has in store. That is why I am terrified before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my face. As we saw last Sunday, uh, Eliphaz begins the final cycle of speeches. That is, the three friends who are speaking uh, to comfort Job. They've come to comfort him, but now they are reacting with criticism and judgment at his claim of innocence and, and, and his question as to why this has happened to him. As I mentioned last week, Eliphaz is almost unrecognizable in his third, third and final speech. Here he directly challenges Job and accuses him falsely of many wrong sins, wrong deeds. The conversation with Job has taken its toll, and Eliphaz is frustrated. He's not getting anywhere with his friend. He just can't seem to get through to him to have him understand that he has sinned, and that is why he is suffering all of these things. He tries to make three points, which we looked at last week. First of all, that Job has committed grave sins against his fellow human beings. Secondly, that God is not so transcendent that he doesn't know what's going on on the planet. And thirdly, that Job should repent. And as we saw, all three sections, all three issues boil down to one question. Is God interested in humanity at all? <clears throat> I mentioned at the end of the sermon last week that one of the difficult things in, in looking at Job's friends is they say good things and they say bad things. Uh, some things that are correct and some things that are wrong. And I want to remind you of two aspects in which Eliphaz was wrong. And this leads us into our study here of Job chapter 23. First of all, he opens with a series of questions, as he does with all of his other speeches. But these questions can be boiled down to one. Is God interested in the righteousness of any individual? He asks, among other things, in verse 3, what pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? We noted last Sunday that God, in fact, does take pleasure, personal delight in the integrity of his servant, Job. Uh, 
uh, on two occasions, God says to Satan, the accuser, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. But Eliphaz doesn't see it this way. He seems to be saying that God doesn't notice our righteousness. He only notices when we mess up. When we do things wrong, then God is right there. He's got an accurate count of all of our sins. I mentioned last week the Monty Python movie, The Holy Grail, in which God is pictured as one who's really put out with humanity because all people ever do is say, forgive me for this or forgive me for that. I should have also mentioned another movie, by contrast, Chariots of Fire, in which Eric Little, a man who is training to be a missionary in China and at the same time training to run in the Olympics, is asked by his sister, why do you do this? You're going to be a missionary. Why are you running? And he says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. This sense of feeling God's delight uh, in our lives. I feel that we have lost that sense of God's pleasure, his sheer delight in his people. Yes, he knows far better than we do that we are sinners, that all that we do is tainted by sin. But we read in many places, but in Psalm 103, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. One has only to visit the house of someone who has small children and go to the kitchen to look at the refrigerator door to see the masterpieces of their children uh, that a child will scribble or paint or color. And to the average person, it looks like nothing. But to a parent, it looks like a masterpiece. And the parent takes delight in what the child does. I see God doing the same thing with us. Fully aware of our fallenness, our finiteness, our sinfulness, and yet putting our obedience, which we can do by His grace alone, putting it up on the refrigerator door and saying, look at what my son, look at what my daughter has done. I think we've lost real sight of that. The second thing that I want to remind you of is that Eliphaz, at the end of his speech, seeks to tempt Job to repent. And the temptation comes in this form. If you repent, you will get the following rewards. Reconciliation with God, prosperity, wisdom, joyful living, security, power in prayer, authority and intercession. It's an amazing uh, thing toward the end where Eliphaz says, you will say to God, lift this person up and God will lift them up. You will just have such power in prayer. Well, we will see in, in Job's response, which is chapters 23 and 24, Job ignores his friends and he ignores Eliphaz, the accusations against him. But I think most importantly, he ignores the summons to repent, even though what Eliphaz has promised him is the thing that Job wants, peace with God. But Job is a man of integrity and he's not going to compromise his integrity by faking repentance, by saying, OK, OK, I will repent. He knows, his friends don't seem to know, that he cannot have peace with God if he seeks God for the benefits he will receive from God. The only way there can be reconciliation is when, when one seeks God for God himself. In chapter 23, which we could entitle Confidence, we find some of the strongest statements in this book 
about Job's innocence and about his assurance that he would survive a trial before God. Next week, the Lord willing, we will look at chapter 24, which we would entitle Complaint. And here, Job complains about the inequities in the world. Why is it that God allows those who are innocent to suffer? We've seen this before, but I think we'll spend some time with it. In reading Job's responses, I think we must make one of two choices as we read it, as we seek to interpret it. The first option that we have is to see Job as an incredibly arrogant man. A man who is alienated from God and yet convinced of his own innocence. He's willing to take God on. Come on, God, bring me to heaven, take me to court, and put me on trial, and I will come out as innocent. I think that is the way many people read Job. The second option is to see him as a pioneer of faith, a man who is on a journey of faith. I've mentioned uh, in previous sermons that Job's responses to his friend in fact, do represent a pilgrimage of faith of sorts. He begins with being angry at God, and then he is in despair at the power of God. He is terrified at God's presence and God's absence. Then we find him beginning to have hope of vindication. And then in chapter 19, that amazing chapter, my Redeemer lives. But then in Chapter 21, he reverts and he criticizes how God runs the world. Here, Job simply wants to find God and to make his case before God. But I think some might object and say, well, this doesn't really sound like a progression. We should recognize that the journey of faith is a struggle of contradictions. There are flashes of insight, and we will see see them in this chapter today. But it isn't sort of a one, two, three, four, five. If we want to put it that way, oftentimes it's one, two, three, two, three, four, three, two. That is, it isn't always onward and upward. That there are times in which Job seems to think so clearly, and then in the next moment will say something that seems to completely contradict what he says. So it begins, if you look at verse number two, by saying... Um, that he is someone who is bitter and powerless before God. But then he wants to know, where is God? Because he has been so honest and forthright, Job can then ask, where is God? I suspect that our first instinct, and maybe even our second, when we read this passage, is to find Job guilty of great arrogance. Not to be guilty of having faith. I think that is our natural instinct because of our culture. We focus on product rather than process, which means we are much more comfortable in church language or Christianese to speak in terms of having faith, that is, possessing the product we call faith, rather than speaking of the process of believing. So that we would say to someone, do you have faith, rather than saying, are you believing? I think that that is our culture and I mean, we're part of the culture. It's so uh, infected our thinking that we don't even recognize it. We live in a consumerist, capitalist society. 
we are much more oriented toward the product. We're not concerned with the process. We just want the product. And so all of these instant foods, for example, that's fine. I don't care how you make it. just want the food. I just want the product. And technology, in fact, the great gift of technology is you can skip steps in the process. You can go straight to the product, skip all the steps in between. So we face, I think, a double dilemma when we read the book of Job and this passage in particular, that the idea of pilgrimage or journey seems to us so foreign and incredibly inefficient and really a waste of time if there are shortcuts. We went in Sunday school, we went through the book Pilgrim's Progress. I think that's one of the things that Bunyan wanted to get across. The idea, and there are characters throughout the story who want to take shortcuts. And Christian will not. I just think that for the church today, the idea of pilgrimage it doesn't seem right. Rather, we are much more comfortable saying, do you have faith? And with that thinking, the church, I think, has embraced the idea that one can have perfect or complete or full faith. Get the product. If you've got the product, then all things are possible. The idea of the journey is set aside. So that ideally, in our age, the perfect would, book would be five steps to greater faith. Or twelve steps to have perfect faith. The idea of the lifelong journey, that there will be steps up and steps back, just seems too strange for us. But let's assume for a moment that you are not a child of this age, that you embrace the pilgrimage model. Do you recognize that the pilgrimage for the Christian is not a straight line? That there may be progress and setbacks? And just looking back over my life, I fear that there have been some people who have left the faith because of those setbacks. Because they've had episodes of unbelief. Because they've had failures. Because they've had periods where they were angry with God, where they raged against God. Because they believe, I don't have perfect faith, therefore I must leave the Christian faith. And the church hasn't been there with them to say, listen, it is a journey. It's a pilgrimage. And it's not a straight line. There are detours sometimes. There are setbacks. There are failures. There may be raging against God. But that's part of the journey. It's part of the journey. Job is on this journey and he will not turn back. It is as though his friends are pulling his arm saying, come back, Job, stop and get right. He's on a journey. He wants to see God. He wants to speak to God. He wants God to speak to him. And they can work this thing out. And so we face the dilemma of we reject the pilgrimage motif and we embrace the idea of perfect faith. And I've met people who, uh, and in fact know of a person, uh, the mother of a friend of mine, who ended her life unable to have the faith necessary to get what she wanted. That is not the way it is. 
We are in process. And we will be till the day we die. In coming to chapter 23, I see at least four points that Job is seeking to make. But they're not all together. And I, maybe it's our desire for, hey, Job, will you please speak in an organized fashion so the sermon has, you know, can work it out. But it may be emotionally that he's all over the place. I think we will see more and more of that as we go along. That, that Job is suffering incredibly. But the first point is, where is God? And we see this in verses 3 and then verses 8 and 9. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. And then verses 8 and 9, but if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. The question, where is God, is one we often ask in the midst of suffering. But Job has insight that his friends lack and that oftentimes we may lack in the midst of suffering. The absence of God does not necessarily mean alienation from God. The friends have assumed because God is not with Job that God is angry at Job. And Job is not willing to accept that assumption. He seeks to discover God's presence, but the absence is still deeply troubling. Let me read to you a quote from C.S. Lewis, who wrote um, after his wife died in the book A Grief Observed. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. What does this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so absent a help in our time of trouble? Indeed, one could say that there are times when God seems absent or at least so very far away. The omnipresent God, who by his very being is all places all the time, in creation, outside of creation, seems absent from us in the time of our greatest need. David wrote in Psalm 139 about the fact that we can't hide from God. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. David says, I can't hide from you, God. But it seems clear to me that God can seem to be hidden from us. And sometimes it seems when we need him the most. Why? Why is it this way? I want to be careful to presume, but I did find the words of one author very instructive. 
while God haunts those who try to escape him in order to lead them into an awareness of the truth, he becomes imperceptible to his own in seasons of adversity in order that they may search for him, stretching their faith. God's distancing himself from Job's consciousness reflects his trust in Job. That is, by hiding from Job, he allows Job to assert his innocence as a venture of genuine commitment to God. God is willing to pull back that Job's faith might be stretched, that he might learn, that he might grow. And he, God is able, or God is willing to withdraw because he trusts Job. Doesn't make it any less painless for Job. Job needs God. He wants to make his case before God. But before he does that, he wants to know where God is. But it is very important. Job knows that God exists. He just wants to know where is he right now when I need him the most. The second thing that I see in this chapter is that Job says, I want to make my case. And this is found in verses 4 through 7 and then verses 11 and 12. Because Job believes in God, God is not around at this point, but he's somewhere. Job wants to make his, he wants to seek him, and then he wants to make his case before him. And again, we must ask ourselves, is Job being arrogant, or is he a man who believes? Some might find it's arrogance to suggest that he could make a good case before God. At the very suggestion that he is an upright man, a good man. I say, Job, what's wrong with you? What, what, what arrogance on your part to make such an assumption? If you look at verses 11 and 12, he says, My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. Job says, I'm an obedient man. And part of us wants to say, Job, you're an arrogant man. But what if, in fact, Job is not arrogant, but believing? Listen, what if, in fact, he is telling the truth as a man of faith? Believing, first of all, that he and God will understand each other. That's not a small matter. It is not a small matter to assume that the creator and the creature can in fact converse and have a dialogue. Believing that living according to God's steps, his commands, the words of his mouth, is the way one should live. Job is a man of faith. Believing that God will be fair and in any encounter Job has with him, which in light of what Job has suffered, is an, I think, incredible faith to believe Yes, God is fair. If God takes me to heaven and I go to court, God will be fair. To believe that God will not use his power to, overwhelmed, to overwhelm Job. To use it to an unfair advantage. The almighty versus the pathetic, puny Job. And Job's like, no, God won't do that. He won't play that game. God will be fair. Believing, as we will see in verse 10, that God knows Job. What kind of man he is without Job making his case. In his desire to make his case before God, 
I think we should not hear Job as a man of arrogance, but a man who believes. A man who believes that God is there. The third point is found in verse number 10. And the question is, what is God doing? But he knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Even though Job does not know where to find God, Job knows or believes that God knows exactly where he is. God has full knowledge of Job's thoughts and his actions. As a result, after God has tested Job, Job will come out as gold. That is, as, fi- as gold is purified by fire, Job will be purified in his character. Wait a minute. Okay. Wait a minute. Does this mean that Job understands that what is going on is God actually testing him? And, and why would Job's character need to be purified? If he's a good man, a man of integrity, why does this need to happen? I think this is an instance, and we've seen several of them in our studies, in which Job, by faith, has a flash of insight. He sees something that perhaps he has never seen before, and perhaps beyond his own ability to understand. What he says is true, and it is something we should learn from. The reason for his suffering is still hidden to him, but he believes that it has a purpose. And his confidence in God tells him that that purpose is good. If our suffering has a purpose, and it does, even though we may not know what it is, then by God's grace we should endure. But suffering is not easy. If you have suffered, you know that. But part of what is difficult about suffering is you never know what's coming next. And this is Job's fourth and final point in verses 13 through 17. God is to be feared. Job's self-confidence that if he makes his case before God, he will be vindicated is sort of mediated by the fact that he remembers who God is. His confidence is tempered by his meditation on God's sovereignty. When Job thinks of God's justice, he is bold and he is confident. But when he turns to the issue of God's freedom and God's holiness, fear overwhelms him. And so we find Job going back and forth between confidence and fear of being confident before God and yet very uncertain what is going to happen. Deep and conflicting emotions, I think, are at play here. This final section begins in verse number 13. And Job uh, says, But he stands alone, and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. Two points. God is one. That is, there is no other God. That Job knows what everything that is happening to him, there's only one God in the world. And so God is the one doing it. Okay. There's only one God. This isn't comp- competing entities. There's one God. He is the source. He is the sustainer of all that exists. And secondly, He is the only God. He does whatever He wants. He does whatever He pleases. 
No one can influence him. No one can turn him. God writes the laws. God gives the decrees. God makes the plans. And Job says, that is why I am terrified before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Let's ask ourselves, is that not the appropriate response? I think of all of the difficulties I have faced as a pastor in trying to convince people of certain things in the Bible. The one that comes up time and time again, and of which I've been least successful in convincing people, is that we should fear God. People just, I don't like that idea that we should fear God is love. God is light. God's the creator. He gives us all the things we have. When you say that we should fear God, I just don't like that. Well, I think Job understands far better than we do that God is someone to be feared. He gives us life, and one day he will take our lives. He sustains us. He directs our lives. He leads us through good times. He leads us through bad times. What are you afraid of? I don't want to be afraid of God. Then what are you afraid of? God's the final reality. I mean, everything else is subservient to him. If you're going to be afraid of something under God, and God is the final authority, then it stands to reason that a little fear is appropriate. And yet the fear that Job experiences doesn't shut him up. He doesn't sort of just curl into a ball, into a fetal position and say, I'm just terrified of God, I can't do anything anymore. If you look at the very last verse, he says, Yet I am not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my face. And we will see, the Lord willing, next week in Job 24, uh, Job is going to read the riot act to God to say, Why is it that innocent people suffer? And we will say, well, wait a minute. There he goes again. There's that arrogant, little self-confident man. No, because the process, the pilgrimage, the journey of faith is not only in one direction. It isn't the shortest distance between two points. It is a journey that has twists and turns and setbacks and failures as well as victories. It is a journey we are on by God's grace till the end of our lives and one that we should never abandon. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are people of this generation, of this culture. We want shortcuts. We don't want pain. We want the final product. So we want to have peace with you, communion with you, a deep relationship with you. But we want it right now. I don't want to have to go through all of the agony, all the suffering, the setbacks. We don't want to have to fail anymore to learn. May we learn from Job, as well as from the rest of your word, that we are on a journey. We are in process, that you are transforming us into the image of your Son. 
We are not to be people who primarily possess faith, but we are to be people who believe. That is, we use the faith you have given us. I thank you for what we've seen in Job today. That though you may seem so distant from us at times, you know exactly where we are and what's going on with us. And while we may rage against you at times, question your work in our lives or in the lives of others, you are to be feared because you are the Lord God Almighty. I ask that as we leave today, your grace, your spirit would go with us. May we think on the things that we've talked about today in the coming days. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together? benediction today is actually Paul's doxology found in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.